You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Cyber attacks, cyber terrorism. For years, they felt like things that haven't really affected us. You know, just some headline in the news or a catalyst in movie plot. And even if there was some kind of attack, we were usually far removed from the actual damage. Not anymore. All of that is now changing. We're starting to see attacks at a global scale and with a level of sophistication that can cause real physical damage. Just look at what happened recently with the WannaCry attack, which crippled, and I mean literally crippled, half of the hospitals in the UK. Stop for a second to consider what that actually means. What that means is that operating rooms were shut down. Scheduled MRIs were shut down. Hospitals had to turn away people who were in need of care. This is happening for real now. And what was once abstract is now concrete. But what does it mean for us, our businesses, our societies, and our governments in the age of debilitating cyber-terrorism? What does our future hold? To canvas a problem and understand what's really, truly at stake, we'll hear from Dee Smith, the CEO of Strategic Insight Group, someone who works with investors, private and public corporations, and international law firms on all matters of private intelligence. A true intelligence insider. If the NSA is not secure, then who is? And the answer to that is nobody. Any technique or, or uh, system that is designed by humans can be broken by humans. And to help us explore what can be done about this rapidly growing threat where even the experts are at risk, we speak with Kaushik Guruswamy, the chief technology officer of Menlo Security, and who is responsible for protecting some of the largest financial institutions in the world from cyber attacks. For, the long, for a long time, we're actually blaming end users for the stupidity, if you will. But if you look at the recent past, it's really gone from stupidity to sophistication that even the cybersecurity experts that are getting these emails and going to these websites, you know, they just have to drop their guard for just a second and, you know, they can be tricked to fool. This week on Adventures in Finance, Cybersecurity. Also coming up in this week's episode, as usual, we have our long short segment where Aaron and I discuss our good and our not so good stories of the week. I'm long the RMB, uh, the Chinese currency, and the, Euro- the ECB recently converted 500 million euros worth of their reserves, their foreign currency reserves, into RMB for the first time ever. And my short for the week is uh, the subprime auto loans. And a recent report from Fitch uh, has just said that uh, the 2015 vintage is on track to become not only the worst performing in the history of car loan securitizations, but is going to have cumulative net losses at a rate uh, which they project is going to be 15%. And in a favorite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made, and then we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom they derive from that experience. 
Yeah, strap yourselves in this week. We've got, we've got my buddy Greg Weldon, who's the CEO and president of Weldon Financial. Greg's always great value and things like this. And this week he spoke openly about his experience shorting the Thai baht and the Malaysian ringgit during the 1997 currency crisis. I'm Grant Williams. And I'm Aaron Chen, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is June 15th, 2017, and welcome to episode 20 of Adventures in Finance. Guys, episode 20. Incredible. Well, look, look, first of all, 2017, where would you get that from? What, what's wrong with 2017? You just told me that the <laughs> Brits would give me credit for that, Grant. I, that's why I said it. <laughs> yeah, see, there you go. Another American conforming to uh, British rule of law. No, no, I got, a, I got a thing of peanut butter right here, so I'm, still, I'm sticking true to my North American roots. All right. Well, yeah, episode 20. I mean, that is, that's almost six months worth of podcasts somehow. Yeah. And, and once more right here, James, James, you've been a big part of helping us get to episode 20. I know you get picked on quite a bit from Grant and we're both in studio today. So I, I kind of want to, st- you know, stand up for you a little bit. Well, hang on. I, I, listen, we're at episode 20. I think we could have done at least 25 by now if it hadn't been for James. Uh, well, you know, if you hadn't been jetting around the world so much. Yeah, it's a good point. All right. I've yeah. got no comeback for that one. Well, Grant, why don't we dive right into the long short segment where you and I talk about the good and not so good stories. Yeah, I'm going to break with tradition. I'm going to go first. I'm going to jump in and stake my claim. And I'm going to start off with my short because I feel like I should get the serious one out of the way first. And my short for the week is uh, the subprime auto loans. Now, I wrote about this in a recent Things That Make You Home called Car Trouble, uh, looking at the state of uh, not just the car industry, but the, the securitizations around it, particularly in the subprime sector. And a recent report from Fitch uh, has just said that uh, the 2015 vintage is on track to become not only the worst performing in the history of car loan securitizations, but it's going to have cumulative net losses at a rate uh, which they project is going to be 15%. Now, that's way higher than mortgage originations back in 2007. And even though uh, subprime auto loans are nowhere near as big a component of the economy as mortgage securitizations were back at the height of the bubble, this is, uh, I think, the start, uh, the canary in the coal mine and the auto sector, particularly the auto finance sector, is something that is going to be on a lot of people's radars uh, and that is only going to grow in intensity in the coming months. So I am short subprime auto bonds and in general the auto sector as a whole, which I think is is coming under increasing pressure from a strapped consumer. Yeah, I think that's a, a very suitable short grant. You know, I, I was recently in Toronto, uh, not Toronto, I was in, well, I was in Toronto, but I was in New York afterwards and um you know, when I'm there, I actually like to take, when I take the Ubers, when I take the taxis, I like to speak with the taxi drivers and, you know, kind of pay around, you know, pay attention to your surroundings. Um, I remember a conversation I had with an Uber driver about like, you know, his experience becoming an Uber driver. Cause I'd like to ask him like, how yeah. did you become an Uber driver? And, you know, he, he talked about how, you know, going into the, the housing crisis of 2007, 2008, and then into 2009, you know, he lost his house. So, you know, he, he's, he's renting. Um, and and he said one thing to me that really struck me, and it's, it stayed with me to this day, is that you know if you don't have a house, the last thing you have to really make you feel like you're rich is a car. Yeah, you know. And well, it's, you know, it's interesting. You talk about that in Singapore. Um, people spend a lot of money on cars. Car loans are really cheap, and you know the culture there is not so much for people to entertain at home. People go out for dinner, right. and they go out to restaurants, and they and they all meet up and have dinner out together. So. Perversely, your car is almost a more important status symbol than your home. Yeah. So people do spend crazy amounts of money being able to afford a really expensive car because it does. It says something about them. Yeah, status symbol. I, I, I recently came across a chart that um, 
really kind of struck me too is that uh, I think the year-over-year car sales in China, because you're talking about status yeah. of cars, like cars as a status symbol in China are huge. They're massive. Um, but those have turned negative for the first time since, uh, I think, uh, April or, or March of 2015, before things fell apart. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, just really interesting about cars and, and how this is manifesting. Well, you look, you look at companies like uh, CarMax, the second-hand car deal, you look at Santander, you look at Ali Financial, uh, and even companies like Ford and GM, which have massive finance arms, you know, these are all problems. And the charts of particularly Santander, um, uh, CarMax, and Ali Financial look horrible. The delinquencies are rising. It, it really, it's 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 something that people need to be keeping an eye on because I think it uh, it could get serious in a hurry. Yeah, well, absolutely. And and I think another thing people need to keep their eyes on is is my short for this week, and it's along similar veins. It's actually about subprime mortgages. Okay, we're back there again. We're we? back there again. Yeah, Let, let's get the crap out of the way first, so we can get to the good stuff later. Uh, but mine is about. Um, so it's, it's an article I read in the Wall Street Journal, and it's about this. Um, it first it was centered on this guy named Brandon Boyd, who was a high school junior during the financial crisis, and now um, you know the former Calvin Klein salesman is teaching mortgage brokers how to make subprime loans. <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, I, I mean, it was easy in 2007. You, you find a guy who could fog a mirror and you lend him money. That was basically how it worked. I right. Think. But, you know, now these days, if you can find people to write underwear, then uh, I guess that, that counts yeah. as well. But, you know, the thing you, you kind of mentioned this, too, with the subprime auto loans is that this, the origination for subprime has completely collapsed since 2008. Uh, the stat here, I think, is that back in 2005... Uh, subprime loan, mortgage loan origination was at around $1 trillion. And if you look at 2016 in total, that was around uh, $22 billion. So it, it's, it's crashed completely. So you know, subprime right now doesn't seem to be systemically connected. Maybe it's not that domino that, that cascades everything else. Um, but just reading about this, like you know, former Calvin Klein, Klein suit salesman um, now teaching brokers how to sell uh, or connect you know, lenders and, and, and borrowers is just... I don't know, sign of the times? It's, uh, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's kind of terrifying. I mean, for years, we've, we've kind of lived through the aftermath of that, of that meltdown. A lot of these guys have been you know, standing there like, wading through treacle. I mean, it's been really hard for them to get any purchase, any, any, any uh, traction. Lo and behold, once these things start to pick up, they become all arranged very quickly. Yeah, and there's one quote that uh, came from Mr. Boyd that really struck me was that he said, I knew, you know, back then before you even got into this business, he said, I knew a mortgage was a loan for a house. <laughs> You know, that's a good start. I came in just as a blank slate. You know, so uh, yeah, you know, okay. It's... Well, yeah, okay. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep to myself what I'm thinking about that. But but it just shows you, right? It just shows you once these things get a tailwind behind them, um, people will essentially listen to anybody that knows more than them. And, and if you know, a guy with a who was a blank slate and isn't quite a blank slate anymore, uh, there's a lot of blank slates that will actually take what he says as gospel, which is kind of a dangerous place to be. It is. All right, well, let's get on to the longs. And I, I'm going to jump in because um, I've got a great long this week. I am long camels, but I'm only long attractive camels. The smokes. I don't want any ugly camels. Not the smokes. The uh, Well, the article I found this in referred to them as one-humped beauties, but I don't really want to use that myself. So I'm just going to say attractive camels because uh, this is back from the tail end of last year when Saudi Arabia's Miss Camel pageant um, – 50,000 camels came to the annual camel festival where they, where they choose the prettiest. Well, there are several categories. Yeah. Uh, one of them is the prettiest. There are other things like the milkiest. I'm not quite sure how the they milkiest. figure that one out. But the thing that struck me, um, the prize money for this, there's $31 million up for grabs. $31, 31. million. Yeah. I guess so, you got to do something with those petrodollars. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 incredible. The the, 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 the categories that they were, they were judged on included the length of their eyelashes, the size of their eyes, the shape of their lips, um, 
And uh, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of uh, there's a bunch of photographs here, which obviously oh, are not man. good for a podcast. But it's uh, it's absolutely terrifying just to see what goes on here, and and particularly one who imagines the uh, the nefarious activities. Now, they're, they're, apparently, people are, are, are looking for any drugs in the camel's lips to to puff them up and make them look better. <laughs> uh, it, it's amazing, but thirty one million dollars yeah. in prize money to find the most attractive camel in Saudi Arabia. Which uh, so I want to get long a camel, but uh, only an attractive one. You know, I, I think the, uh, the the wealthy Saudis, like the sheikhs, are really into equestrian and and horses. Maybe this is like the the minor leagues for those who haven't quite. Uh, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, this this story was. I have to I have to say, this story was sent to me from from one of our listeners from Dubai, uh, and God bless them for sending it through. It's uh, it's just a great story, and um, I, I have to say, I, I just don't know where to get a camel from. Well, one lingering question I have is, what happens to the camels who don't win? I mean, ah, well, funny you should say that. Uh, I believe they are served up uh, for dinner at some point during the <laughs> festival. So, you know, if you go in there thinking you are an attractive camel and find out that you're not, there's is uh, a bad outcome. Right. Well, any listeners who are out there who have tried camel meat. Um, not that I'm interested, but I, I wonder. I wonder what that that tastes like. Probably, I don't know, but I'm sure. Dry. I, I'm sure if once you've eaten it, you'd have the hump. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, my long for the week is unfortunately it's a little bit more serious, uh, but interesting. I think it was really, really. It's one of those articles you read. It's like, wow, like could this mark, you know, uh, that that turning point in history? Like that article, you know, that headline we come back to, um, you know, later later in the future. But it's basically the ECB recently converted. Uh, sorry, let me say what I'm long for. I'm long the RMB, uh, the Chinese currency. And the, Euro, the ECB recently converted 500 million euros worth of their reserves, their foreign currency reserves, into RMB for the first time ever. Now, the, the ECB, is that the erotic camel board? <laughs> I don't, well, I don't know what goes on in those closed-door meetings, so maybe. Right. Um, but the central bank said that the move reflected, uh, I quote, the importance of China as one of the euro area's largest trading partners. Uh, but the detail that was kind of left till the very end that I thought was important is that the transaction was actually completed by converting the U.S. dollar holdings. Yeah, this is it, this, this is a great long. Um, camels aside, this is something that uh, it's just another one of those little signs of this incredible secular shift that's going on away from the U.S. and towards China. When you look at One Belt One Road, these are the guys with the money. These are the guys spending on infrastructure projects. These are the guys right. to cozy up to. And you know, for this to happen as America is becoming more insular, um, I think this is just another one of those signs uh, of the road we're on, and the road does lead east. There's no two ways about it. Yeah, it does. But, you know, when I when I tweeted this out, I, I tried to offer some perspective, and I think it's important to remember that 500, you know, even though 500 million euros is a lot, that's, I think, only 16 basis points of, you know, the ECB's total currency. No, reserves. sure. This is more symbolic than anything else, right. but, but it, it's a change in direction, and it's it's uh, it's obviously been done to show the Chinese that, that the ECB are are moving that way. And, you know, I, what, more than anything else, it makes me feel pretty stupid for being long camels this week, because this is a much more important story. All right, well, Grant, if there is no stupid long. Let's move on to our documentary feature for this week, where we'll be exploring a topic that was, it was top of mind about a month ago, and was then swept under the rug by the 24-hour news cycle, as is usually the case, but really has existential consequences for civilization. And so we'll be talking about cybersecurity. Well, Grant, two weeks ago, we did a piece on Bitcoin. And now, in keeping with that tech element, we're going to stay out of our element again with uh, this piece on cybersecurity. 
And my interest first peaked on May 12th when we had the WannaCry ransomware attack. Uh, that attack affected hundreds of thousands of Windows computers around the world. The hackers demanded Bitcoin. Uh, and really, it was kind of eerie. that The hack was based on tools that were leaked from the NSA. So, you know, I began by trying to get the facts from an expert in the field of cybersecurity and who is a part of fighting the threats we saw like WannaCry. And so I got on the phone with Kausik Guruswamy, who's the chief technology officer of Menlo Security, uh, a cybersecurity and malware protection firm based in Silicon Valley that's on the bleeding edge of this stuff. So if you look at, if you step back and think about what ransomware is, is you go to a website and you download a Word document, and it turns out it has macros. And, you know, when you willingly enable those macros, you download the file and you enable macros, and the macro allows this particular piece of malware, if you will, that to encrypt your file system and then hold you hold a ransom, right? It's going to ask you to pay Bitcoin so that it can give you the decryption key so you can get all your documents back. And so that's on the website. You can also get this ransomware via email. Uh, so that's ransomware in of itself is, a, you know, at least from a cybersecurity perspective, it's considered to be a sort of a separate class of attack. Um, and what WannaCry did was it also had a wormability. Uh, what that means is once it encrypted your file system, it didn't just stop there. It could now reach out to all of your uh, friends and neighbors and coworkers and colleagues on the same network, and then it was using sort of a vulnerability uh, in Microsoft Windows um, to essentially propagate itself to other machines and then sort of encrypt those machines and then propagate from there. So really the combination of a ransomware that demanded you know, Bitcoins Combined with this wormability, it made it pretty, pretty nasty. You know, we actually have folks uh, that couldn't, you know, that were actually sent out of the hospitals in, in London because it took down the, uh, the national, uh, the healthcare system there um, and, you know, uh, national health services. And so people are actually asked to go back home because their machines were, you know, shut, shut out and they couldn't really do anything about it. So I think the combination it really was very potent. You know, something that struck me about this WannaCry thing, particularly in the UK, um, was the fact that it, that it attacked the NHS because I think the general feeling that people have about a lot of these hackers is that they're kind of, you know, social crusaders that are trying to take down the man and, uh, you know, take money from big business and almost like a Robin Hood type thing. So, so for this to have gone after the National Health Service where they had to cancel every single operation tabled in the UK that day... Um, it just shows you that ultimately this is not about social altruism. This is about money and extorting money from people. And uh, everybody is at risk. And in fact, government organizations where perhaps there is less attention paid and money spent on cybersecurity are perhaps the most vulnerable uh, places of all. I think you'll find a lot of the bulge bracket um, investment banks, which would be great targets, uh, big global corporations spend a lot of money on cybersecurity. So it's going to be an interesting clash between you know, this idealism that, that the hackers are supposed to have and the easy targets to, to extort money, which are absolutely without question going to be government organizations. Yeah, that makes that's so true. And I guess they're kind of ripe targets, right? Because all businesses, all institutions, they can't get any work done without email yeah. or web. So you know, we all operate on these connected networks. And, and from there, actually, I want to find out you know, all the ways in which we can be affected, not just via ransomware. You know, there's, there's a, sort of a, there's a strong tendency in the cybersecurity industry to glorify, if you will, every single type of, you know, malware that comes across. And there's plenty of them that go around. Uh, but if you step back from all of this, 
there's only a few different ways that you're going to get infected. Okay, so on the web, if you're running a really old version of a browser and Flash, if you will, and you go to some website, then somebody could infect your machine. That's number one. You go ahead and willingly download a document or ex executable from a questionable website or an unknown website. You download them and execute them and then wonder why you got infected. Okay, so that's two. And really the last one on the website is somebody sets up a you know, web page that looks like your favorite bank and then you, know, you try to log in there and it turns out somebody just told you your username and password. So very, very broadly speaking, there's sort of weaponized documents and then there's malware on the web and then credential theft. On the email side, really, it's only a couple of things. Uh, one, somebody sends you a link, which now takes you back to the browser, and it's one of those three things that I just talked about. Or somebody sends you an attachment, which, again, you willingly open it, enable macros, and then get infected. So if you step back from all sort of the day-to-day -day noise of the million different variants of malware, really, there's only like five or six different ways for people to get infected. The one thing that strikes me when Kaushik talks about this is how it's, it's on us to really pay attention to what we open. And I think if you, if you question every attachment you sent, you question every link you sent, that's the first step to avoiding this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, I, I won't open anything from anybody unless I kind of know who they are. And if I get anything from, you know, even a lot of people use Apple to try and like these things. I mean, the, the, the one thing I always do is I always look at the address that was the sender came from and, I mean, they never, ever say apple.com. It's always, you know, a whole load of consonants with no vowels in it <laughs> at weirddomain.net and stuff. It, it's amazing how just simple steps on our part, just being vigilant and careful in what you open and what you click on, can really massively reduce your risk of getting caught by these things. Yeah, that's, that's really true. But I think on the other hand, too, is that, you know, we live in this kind of fast-paced, fast information, fast consumption society where it is difficult for a lot of people to take that moment and to assess and to, in some ways, have your own firewall, right? Before you, yeah. you, you open any attachment or click on any kind of link. Um, and, and as Gaussier describes here, there are five or six ways to get infected. Um, it doesn't sound like a lot, but these attacks have also evolved over time to take advantage of our psychological biases and blind spots. So really what's happened is for, the long, for a long time, we're actually blaming end users for the stupidity, if you will, um, basically saying, look, we need, to invest in, invest in, you know, we need to invest in more training and more awareness programs, and really we need to coach our users into understanding cybersecurity better. But if you look at the recent past, it's really gone from stupidity to sophistication that even the cybersecurity experts that are getting these emails and going to these websites, you know, they just have to drop their guard for just a second and, you know, they can be tricked and fooled. So really we're seeing a sort of a evolution, if you will, in terms of, you know, how these things are actually getting modified. Um, so I think to me the social risk of links is there, but really the social, I, I, I believe that the social, the stuff that you post is now being sort of characterized and classified and, and, and then being used to target you uh, via email in a very, very specific way. You know, Grant, it was actually kind of unprompted because we were talking about the different ways that you can be attacked and we kind of veered off into social media, which, I mean, it's, it's sort of a natural place to go when we talk about this stuff. Um, but the, the point about social risk and of, you know, of what you post, I think often goes unnoticed. I mean, Facebook can build shadow profiles of people who aren't even on the platform. Right, so you can be someone who doesn't want to be on Facebook, but if your pictures or if there are statuses with your name mentioned in it, like they, you know, Facebook can assemble these shadow profiles. I mean, I've read about forensic cryptographers analyzing and clustering uh, blockchain transactions to build profiles. So, I mean, when I when I see all of this and then we hear this from from Kaushik, I mean, my operating assumption is that 
what you post stays up there forever. It, it does. It, it's a great point, Aaron. And, and I think, again, this is, this is a generational thing, um, but not in the fact there's a divide. I think, I think the, the millennial generation and the boomer generation uh, are kind of equally uh, at risk with this because the millennials have this amazing propensity to be happy about sharing everything about their lives. They really don't have those filters. They don't want to guard it. Um, you know, my generation, Generation X, we're fiercely protective of our of our privacy, and we don't like posting stuff. We don't like putting stuff out there. And then you know, you go forward one more generation. The boomers are, are kind of enamoured with Facebook and sharing stuff with the kids and the grandkids, and, and and it's really opened a lot of doors to them to stay in touch in ways they haven't really grown up with. So you know, those two generations, the two biggest generations in in human history, are both incredibly susceptible to the kind of things that Kashi talks about. Yeah, absolutely. And now that we know kind of what happened and I guess the nature of the current threats that we face, I want to actually learn a little bit more about where we've been and where we're headed. In some ways, things are different and in some ways they're really not. It's still the exact same problem from many, many years ago. Uh, you know, I built the first inline IPS way back in 2001 and the class of threats back then it was in some ways more sort of network DDoS wormy type stuff, right? There was no money attached to it. You know, this is Basically, it's cryptkitties and people kind of doing stuff for fun. You know, and now if you fast forward 20 years later, uh, now you've got, you know, sort of the elections being tampered with uh, by, you know, by whatever different approaches. And, you know, there's a broad, think about ransomware and think about all the other stuff that's happening with breaches to Sony, et cetera. Uh, cybersecurity, especially the criminals, they're very well equipped to monetize this. And so... Really, from the from before and after, if you will, you know, the, uh, 20 years ago versus now, it's really about the ability for these guys to have some very major influence in things like elections, and the other one is really the monetization aspect of it. So, Grant, I think this actually dovetails really interestingly back into what you said earlier about uh, the commercial interest in this, and 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 not only that, but also like you know, the, one, the techniques have become more sophisticated. We have a plurality of actors, and you know, monetization is largely anonymous and instant. So, you know, if you're if one of these hackers, you can you can get paid and, and no one's going to, you know. Well, the, 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 the really scary thing for me about this is that by definition, the security side of this is reactive. You know, you don't know those loopholes are there until they get exploited. So you've got a, a bunch of really smart guys all around the world looking for weakness um, and they're smart enough to find it and they will always find it. And it's not until they find it, exploit it, and whether they monetize it or just create chaos that the, the response comes in terms of just closing those loopholes down. So you know, we, we are in a, in a situation that these things are going to keep happening. They're going to keep coming. They're going to keep attacking. They're going to keep finding weaknesses. And it's up to the cybersecurity firms to respond and shut them down. So it, it's, it's an almost impossible task to keep up with these guys. Yeah, Grant, I think the point about it being reactive as opposed to being proactive is, is a great point. And it, we'll come back to Kausik a little later uh, to better understand what's being done to protect against these threats. But if we are reacting, I mean, where, where are these tools coming from? Um, when Kausik talks about the wormability, uh, social media, and, and the embedded complex networks that we have... You know, what is the true nature of the cybersecurity risk? Um, it's almost as if there's like a darker and deeper world out there when it comes to cyber attacks. You know, cyber represents a geopolitical risk factor 
a key social risk factor, a key market risk factor, and a key personal risk factor. We created this world in which everything's knitted together in ways we do not understand, and in which everything depends in a very profound way on the functioning of complex and fragile systems that we do not fully understand. That's Dee Smith, CEO and principal of Strategic Insight Group, which is a private intelligence firm that helps investors and corporations, public and private, gather intelligence on and mitigate risks that are all around them. When it comes to intelligence insight, he's the real deal. And so the general idea that people have of cyber risk is wrong, or maybe not so much wrong as just stunningly incomplete. Um, Generally, people have thought that cyber attacks are about stealing identities or credit card information or attacking financial institutions like banks and so forth, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Cyber attacks um, can, I think something people don't realize is that cyber attacks can cause physical damage in the real world. And that includes damages to systems like the electrical grids that supply electricity and so forth. So we're at the um, beginning of a new era. And um, the danger of this era is that an attack on something like an electrical grid can cause what's known as a risk cascade. And that's because all our infrastructure systems in the modern world are fundamentally depend on electric power. So imagine what a dense modern city like New York or London or San Francisco would become if you had every night in utter darkness filled with people with no water and no food. And we're not talking about electricity being out for a few hours or a few days, but for weeks or even months. And so it's a huge risk. And we're just seeing the first instantiations of the kinds of things that can happen. You know, Aaron, as we went down this rabbit hole, it, it, you feel this sort of cloak of coldness envelop you when you realize just how serious this is, um, how, how minuscule the barriers are for people to get at you uh, and what the, the scale of the problems that can happen. And, and I think we all have this kind of notion as to what cybersecurity is and why it's important and the kind of things you read about in the headlines. But when you understand the, the depth of this problem, it really is quite chilling. It is, and you know, which causes me to look at that jar of peanut butter that's sitting in front of me with, with greater interest. You know, <laughs> right. um, but you know, another thing that people don't realize is that these kinds of attacks are constant um, in the cyber world. Literally, the distance between the burglar and the front door of your house is zero. The average American company is attacked four million times a year. That's seven point six attacks per minute for each company. And then you look at the average financial services company, it's attacked a billion times a year, which is 1,920 times a minute. And even low uh, priority, low cyber priority government organizations like the U.S. Post Office. The U.S. Post Office was attacked 4 billion times in 2016, which is 7,610 attacks per minute on average. So, you know, and these attacks are mounted by a huge range of of what are called threat vectors, you know, the the people who mount these attacks. About 82% of them are private hacktivists. It's the largest group. Um, They often have a political agenda, um, but they don't, they're not that effective. They have less than a 1% chance of breaking into a system. And then you have cyber criminals, and they mount somewhere of 15 to 17% of attacks but they're very motivated and they're much more effective and they have a success rate of about 20%. And then the state, state, state activity, state-sponsored attacks 
are by far the most effective, although they're the smallest amount of, uh, in terms of the number. They're only about 2% or so, but they're effective 98% of the time in, in doing what they want. So you've got all these actors, um, and they're all playing in a geopolitical dynamic that used to be reserved for major powers and a few non-state actors like terrorist groups. And now, um, you know, the lines between actors have blurred. And um, in fact, it's not unusual for uh, these attacks to involve, um, uh, you know, several parties and cross lines because people don't want to be easily tracked. Yeah, it, it, it's remarkable. Anyone listening to this on their phone, on the on the on the podcast app, and uh, on an iPhone, you can hit that rewind fifteen seconds. If you hit that eight times, that'll take you back the one minute fifty one seconds of that clip and listen to it again. Because what D talks about there is truly terrifying when you when you look at how many attacks occur. Um, you know, something like the postal service. You know, it's kind of a, a laughing stock in this day and age that you know you still have guys in badly fitting uniforms manually walking around delivering mail. But the amount of money that's trans that is transferred across the country through those things, I mean, it, it, it's terrifying. It is. And the barrier to entry has never been lower. No, right. And, and it's and getting tool, lower. That's yeah, the scary thing. It's getting thing. lower. The tools have never been more accessible. And they're just, you know, actors pouring into this space. I thought it was particularly interesting when Dee brought up the geopolitics of it and the government actors, because that's probably gotten the most press, uh, as he said, because they have the largest impact and they also have the highest success rate. Uh, and then just looking at the recent past, you know, state-sponsored hacking has garnered the most interest, I mean, whether it's the, the Russian hacking. Uh, I mean, we can't go a day without hearing about that these yeah, days. Yeah, North Korea. It's always right. the bad actors, right? Right, it's always the bad it's actors. It's always the bad actors doing right. this thing. and. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I want to hear more about how the geopolitics uh, or that theater factors in. So geopolitically, cyber essentially represents a new battlefield. And there's already, as I mentioned, there's already a kind of low-level warfare that's ongoing all the time. But a key difference is that anyone can play in this. States are the most effective players, and they mount attacks against states constantly and also against private entities within states. But then there are the cyber criminals. Some are very accomplished. Um, and there are people just who are individuals with like hackers with political agendas. And although it's unlikely, you know, a determined single individual with the right skill set could cause a huge amount of damage. You know, I thought this was really interesting because it has a lot of parallels to how, I guess, modern war is fought on the ground. I mean, we talk about a small group of individuals that can have an asymmetric impact in real life. I'm just thinking about 9-11. I mean, I think that is the yeah. the ultimate example of that asymmetric effect that a small group can have. Um, so I don't know. It, it was just it, it, that parallel. I thought it was interesting kind of uh, to think about. Well, there's a lot of talk. You know, people talk about uh, a, a, another world war. Right? We, we, we talk about the parallels in the lead up to this period now with World War One. We talk about the similarities with World War Two. It's generally the debt situation, exactly, et cetera, et cetera. And people have this notion that another war couldn't happen. But when you listen to someone like D talk, you realize that there are plenty of ways that wars can happen. And, and a cyber war is by far the most likely outcome of this if it does devolve into conflict. Yeah, and it's the least understood, Yeah, uh, which makes perfect sense too. Uh, and from there, you know, when we talk about the, the different actors that are in this space, I thought it was interesting to talk about, maybe explore the dynamic between the smaller actors like individuals and, and hacktivist groups uh, versus the larger actors like governments. I think one of the things to uh, understand in it, that a lot of the talent, if you want to call it that, that's operating in that environment is very young uh, and, um, and 
large, um, less agile entities, let's say, like companies and governments, have difficulty competing with um, with the hacktivists for several reasons. Um, one of which is that they are resistant to sharing information, and um, you know, information sharing occurs constantly within criminal groups and terrorist groups and others that operate in the dark web who want to disrupt the powers that be, and they all share that goal that of disrupting the let's call them the incumbent powers that you know the the the, the um, established systems of the world. And um, that kind of sharing, uh, even uh, among groups with no other links, uh, is, is huge and not appreciated. So new hacking techniques and other information is uh, disseminated quickly and widely by these bad actors in the dark web. And, you know, in contrast, the information sharing that occurs among good actors, even those who are allies, is uh, is much more limited, and that's getting, in fact, even more limited. And, and a key reason for this is that governments, and particularly law enforcement intelligence agencies, operate with a culture that's centered on on what's called need to know basis. And so there's this long-standing disposition against sharing information because it would compromise sources, methods, compromise tradecraft. It would devalue the information and make it less actionable or usable. Uh, but unfortunately, the willingness of the bad actors to share information among themselves puts um, their counterparts continually behind the eight ball, so to speak. And, and um, it's hard to see how this is going to be addressed because, um, you know, as we're seeing uh, on a daily basis, governments are becoming more suspicious of each other, not less suspicious. You know, Grant, I can absolutely vouch for um, that sort of uh, open source culture that exists in in the tech world. I mean, I was in San Francisco for a little bit uh, before coming to Real Vision, and you know everything that that culture of sharing, that culture of open source is is definitely there. And and so as you'd expect, it it also you know these hacked these hackers and hacktivists will also come from a similar culture. But you know when you look at government, who probably have the most to lose in these situations, they operate on this need to know basis where they don't share. I mean, just look at what happened with WannaCry. I mean, the NSA was aware of this vulnerability in the Windows operating system, but didn't share it with them. Yeah. Until until literally, like, you know, I think Windows released the update for the software two months, a month and a half before the the attack actually went, uh, was underway. So, I don't know, it's just this culture clash is really interesting and, and, and adds, like, another layer dimension to this dynamic between well, the different players. Yeah, you know, it's being fueled by this, this, this media war on uh, uh, this media attempt to demonize bad actors, so-called bad actors. You know, this, the, 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 the fixation on Russia now in the U.S. media, um, and a lot of these hackers come from Russia, uh, maybe private, maybe in the public sector, but this fear of sharing information with the Russians now, uh, you know, it has its downside. There, there, there is a, a case to be made for actually trying to have some sort of cooperation with the home of a lot of these bad actors and try and get some sense of... of how they work and how to, how to work around the, the damage they cause. Yeah, absolutely. And but it doesn't seem likely that that sort of co- cooperation will uh, will come about because when we think about um, geo- when we think about it geopolitically, we think about it economically. I mean, the, the world seems appears to be trending towards deglobalization, um, isolationism. Uh, so unfortunately, that doesn't seem likely, and that would that means that uh, government sponsored entities may be most successful, you know, for now. But the advantage might actually be swaying towards the smaller actors. Yeah. Uh, and, and with this, I want to find out more about the place where these smaller actors, you know, occupy. And Dee kind of mentioned this this deep web or the dark web. It's a place where 
few have heard of and even fewer know how to access and navigate, but it, it actually underlies virtually every single instance of our virtual existence. So, you know, most people access, when they access the web, they're really just accessing essentially a layer on the surface of what's out there. Um, it's what you can reach with an ordinary commercial browser, and it's less than 20% of the internet. But with the right tools and the right skills, which are not that hard to acquire, you can enter the dark web, and that's um, probably about 81% of the internet. 81% of the information in the interweb, internet is in the is in the, uh, uh, the, the what is actually called the deep web, and that's the domain of hackers and terrorists and traders of everything, from cyber weapons to child porn to almost anything else you can imagine. And one way that's useful to think of the internet, although it's it's a gross simplification, but you can think of it as a layer cake. And you know what ordinary users actually um, access is the the fairly thick layer of icing on the top. But below that are other layers that are, as I said, are called the deep web. And without realizing it, people access the deep web all the time. When you buy a plane ticket, when you order something from eBay or Amazon, when you sign up for medical insurance, any of those things involve accessing the deep web, which is normally invisible in terms of you know something you would access directly, but you access it indirectly because it's the part of the internet that houses, controls, and processes the databases that enable all those kinds of transactions to happen. And so, you know, in theory, these are secured from unauthorized access, but that's not actually the case. They, uh, people who develop the right skills can enter the dark web uh, and, and access these things. And then there's a part of the dark web, uh, or sorry, there's a part of the deep web that is called the dark web. And it's all and you could think of it conceptually as the bottom layer of the cake. And, and it's particularly inaccessible uh, unless you know how to reach it. Grant, have you ever uh, explored any of these parts of the web? Uh, no. And or, even if I had, you think I'd admit that on a podcast that goes out to <laughs> thousands of people. Uh, you know, it's, it's so fascinating to me to talk to, to guys like Dee about this stuff because you, you just realize uh, even people who think they are computer savvy, technology savvy, internet savvy – you have no clue about about the dangers out there and just how deep this thing goes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the point of of talking about the deep web and the dark, it wasn't for that itself, you know. Um, for our purpose, we simply want to know that it exists and, you know, it's accessible if you have the right skills and it's where the tools lie that enable attacks like WannaCry. Uh, it's where they're available at the right price and, you know, with the right contact. Well, look, no, knowing, knowing there's sharks in the water makes you more cautious about going in the water. So that, that, that's a big part of... of this week's episode is to make people understand just how serious this thing is and, and how, how deep it goes and how far-reaching it is. So at least you understand that it's not just some abstract concept, the dark web. Right. Unless you're James and you hear sharks, you jump right in. Yeah, right. But, you know, Grant, if you look at the past year, and, and uh, you know, it, it's with a heavy heart that I, I mention and, you know, these things, is that the number of terrorist attacks using cars and trucks to plow into crowds of people is alarming and it's staggering. Um, but now consider what happens if you start placing autonomous cars on the road that, by necessity, have to be connected to each other via some kind of network. The question of, uh, of, of driverless cars and driverless trucks and so forth represents another huge element of risk because not only can those systems be, simply be vulnerable to outages, it requires a constant flow of information to keep those things moving and to keep them from running into each other. But they can be hacked and they can be then directed 
to do attacks like the ones we saw in Nice. Uh, and they can also be um, hacked and uh, used for assassination or for targeted killings. Imagine a driverless truck that was, um, you know, uh, hacked and driven into a gas station and the explosion that might occur. I mean, it, 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 it raises the vulnerability yet again to an entirely new level. And then in addition to that, with the Internet of Things, you have these billions of devices that are are or are going to be connected to the internet in the next few years. And those can be used for attacks as they already have been. So everything that we do actually in terms of increasing the uh, ubiquity of, of cyber systems within our lives raises the threat uh, um, protocol, the, the threat level of threat to a, a, a you know, a, essentially an order of magnitude higher. And then we're always behind the eight ball to try to to um, uh, to correct that. And, and, and in fact, we can't. So, you know, this is what I mean by social decisions. We have to decide where, if anywhere, we want to draw the line or do we simply take the risk because we like the convenience of it or the, you know, um, some other aspect that that over outweighs the risk. But the risk is getting very high. And so, granted, it goes back to what you were saying about, you know, being reactive instead of proactive. And we're always behind the eight ball because we have this system. It's a complex system we don't understand and where the effects are nonlinear and therefore difficult to predict. So how do we get to this point of of such severe vulnerability? You may ask, why is this vulnerability there? Why are these systems so vulnerable? And the reason is, or a principal part of the reason, is that they were designed for efficiency and flexibility, not for security. And there are several trade-offs in this whole world. One of them is between uh, security and efficiency, and another one of them is between security and privacy. So, you know, it's, um, it, it, it's going to require a set of social decisions about how we, how we want to live our lives and what kinds of things we want to do in the cyber world. And those decisions may be forced on us by events which will be an unfortunate outcome. This, to me, is the crux of the whole thing. Human beings are, are progressive animals. We've done everything we have over over millions of years to try and improve our lives. Everything from fire to the wheel to the internet has been designed to make our lives easier. And we've now hit this point where we're making things easier for people with bad intentions. And so we have to understand that, and we have to, I think, make conscious decisions about, okay, bearing in mind that these risks are real and the easier we make things the more real these risks become and the easier they become to perpetrate how far do we want to go i mean do we want to trade our privacy for for danger do we want to trade convenience for increased risk of removing the the downside to perpetrating evil acts and in in that that you take away the need for people to die to make their point you can do it with with a with a laptop from from 100 miles away so I think he's absolutely right. This is we're at a point in time where some really hard decisions need to be made and they need to be made very consciously. We can't just allow this thing to drift endlessly uh, and then and then start getting up in arms when people are given the tools to perpetrate heinous acts uh, with, with increasing simplicity. Right. And and Grant, I think maybe someone older than me would argue differently, but um you know how in in um when we look at markets, we always we, we kind of look at things, I think I, got, I get this from uh, Neil Howe, is that we look at things from the post-World War II era, right? Uh, and, and when I think about the trade-offs and the societal conversations we need to have, um, I think Edward Snowden demarks sort of where, 
you know, it set off that societal debate about privacy and security. Um, you know, there's that Benjamin Franklin quote that, that rings in my head, you know, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Now, I mean, we, we live in a time that I think uh, Benjamin Franklin would scarcely recognize. Um, but I don't know, something to think about. And still it feels like society isn't having this essential debate. Um, and Dee and I spoke about why this might be the case. The conditions don't, they, they, we can have these conversations, but the conditions don't encourage us to have these conversations because, of course, the last thing that people who are selling these things want is for people to back off of them. So there is an implicit um, you know, uh, force to make people continue to do these things, um, and it's commercial. Uh, but, but in addition, um, you know, there's the complacency that you just described, which is, if anything, one of the most um, harmful aspects of it, because we, as you said, we do become conditioned, and we, we simply, life is so compl- complicated, and life is so, um, you know, already so difficult and has so many things in it that stopping to read terms and conditions or opting in or opting out are things most people can't think of. So, you know, you've got these dichotomies or dilemmas where on the one hand, what needs to happen to make you more secure is um, actually flies in the face of what needs to happen to preserve your uh, privacy. And we see that 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 dichotomy or that continuum um, at play all over the world in almost everything right now between privacy and security. If you, as a private individual, as a private citizen, want to set your privacy level to a certain level, you say, I I don't want my fridge connected to the internet, I don't want a driverless car, it doesn't matter because society as a whole is going to make a different decision and, and these vulnerabilities will impact you regardless of where you set your own personal privacy settings. Having said that, and talking about the difference between how you set a private security level with a public one, it makes a lot of sense to bring back Kaushik and talk about the differences he sees between those two threat levels. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Grant, you and I both know that the complacency, the hubris, that is prevalent across society, markets, government. I mean, this is a given. Uh, but part of the reason we did this piece is to combat that complacency and hopefully uh, to bring our listeners, you know, something that helps them understand the complex world that we live in. So I think it'd be a good time to return to Kaushik um, and to hear about the state-of-the-art solutions out there to help protect individuals and corporations. So Mental Security was formed in 2013 by a number of, uh, number of folks here that have been in the security industry for a long time. And, and the company was really formed in some ways out of frustration, if you will, that the existing cybersecurity solutions are not 100%. Um, and, and the challenge with that is, of course, you know, there's constant breaches and everybody's getting breached. So what we really wanted to spend the time on in, in terms of building the company and the product is see if we can pioneer the solution that's based on what we call isolation that effectively guarantees sort of a 100% delivery model, if you will, uh, for taking problems off the table. Kashuk's been in the field a long time, so he's pretty well placed to see what's out there. So if you look at the last 20 years of security industry, um, McAfee, I believe, announced their first antivirus uh, way back in 1987, I think. Um, and really, from that point onwards, up until now, if you take a look at every single security product, it fundamentally tries to do two things. 
Uh, one, try to figure out whether something is good or bad, and then take the policy that either allows or block. I'm oversimplifying, but that's really how every single security product works, whether it's an intrusion detection prevention system, whether it's a sandbox, whether it's an email security gateway, proxies, next generation firewall. Every one of them, they use different techniques to figure out what is good or bad. But ultimately, the good-bad decision ends up in a policy that says allow or block. So the concept behind isolation is really the risk equates to active content. So let's figure out a way to take the active content and execute it somewhere else, but still provide the user with the similar experience as before. And so for Menlo, what we do is we basically have a cloud platform. And when you go to a website, you know, CNN, New York Times, whatever, uh, what we're doing is we're basically using what's called a browser isolation technique to run another browser in the cloud, which then goes to the website on your behalf. So everything about the website, the ad networks, all of them end up executing in the cloud. And so none of it ever comes to you. So what comes to you is in some ways, if I can sort of up-level this, is what the isolator browser sees. And we've done it in such a way, there's no sort of, you know, there's no trade-off. We're not making any trade-off to performance. We're not, uh, or latency for that matter. And your end-user experience continues to be exactly the same as before, except there's no risk because we are not trying to figure out whether something is good or bad. Great. I actually asked Kaushik to up-level this one more level and explain it with a pretty funny example, actually. So the analogy that I use to customers is it's as if I go to the, you know, go to the Apple store, get a MacBook, you know, open it up, go to, go to, go to read some news, and then close the laptop, throw it in the garbage can, go back to Apple store, get another Mac. You know, I'm going to be broke very soon, but um, it's definitely a very secure way of doing things because we're not letting anything linger around for extended periods of time. And so if it weren't for Menlo Security, maybe Apple's stock price would be a lot higher. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, joking aside, cyber is a new battlefield, as, as Dee talked about, and, and there are a plurality of motivated actors at play with access to tools we don't even know exist yet. Yeah, it, it, but I think that the key thing that comes across as, we, as we've done this documentary feature is it's important for us to be proactive about this. It's incumbent upon everybody listening, everyone that accesses the internet, to do what they can to be proactive. You know, you talk to someone... Uh, like Kaushik, you know, his company doesn't just serve individuals. They, they, they deal with guys like JP Morgan. They have a quarter of a million end users. Um, and, and retail institutions, educational institutions, insurance companies. And, and it's important to understand that, that the same technology that's available to, to massive global corporations, you as an individual can access this kind of stuff just by understanding it, looking at what you need to do, and being proactive about ring-fencing yourself and, and putting your own firewalls in place. Yeah, absolutely. And we should be having these debates. We should be thinking about these trade-offs. And, and if we want to continue to enjoy the modern conveniences that come from an increasingly interconnected and, and complex world, we have to take, at some, at some level, individual responsibility for securing our own privacy and virtual well-being, as, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Right? All right, but before we cap things off, I actually want to share a bit of offline chat I had with D about something he's working on for Real Vision, which, Grant, you and I are both pretty excited about, I know. Yeah. Um, as, as some of our subscribers are aware, D is a private intelligence and geopolitics expert and has appeared before a couple times on Real Vision, either as an interviewer or interviewee. But without letting the cat out of the bag, I'm actually going to let D explain this. He's working on an exciting new geopolitics series for Real Vision TV, and I want to get an update from him on how that's going. We're living in an age of stunningly rapid global change and increasingly great disorder. And we've got these strains on alliances and relationships, formal and informal, that stretch from Europe to the South China Sea. There's this increasing violence 
from the Ukraine to Yemen, from Syria to Thailand to Venezuela. You've got a much more nationalistic and militaristic Russia and a more nationalistic and militaristic China. And they're both aggressively challenging their neighbors, and they're also challenging the U.S. and Western Europe. And there are a lot of dangerous new trends, including irregular warfare and hybrid warfare. Conflict has become much less containable in nature. You can see the rise of demagogues uh, from country to country, Russia, Turkey, Poland, India, the Philippines, the rise of the European far right, this rise of exclusionary nationalism in a lot of countries, a lot of proliferation of violent non-state actors like ISIS, who are now acting globally and the rise of transnational crime, uh, which are interrelated. You've got a Middle East that is plunging into ever greater conflict with, among other things, the Sunni-Shia divide that looks like a new 30 years war. The number of displaced people, which means you know people who are forced, uh, involuntarily forced to migrate, both internally and externally, is in ex- excess of 65 million which is more than one in every 113 people on the planet. And on average, 24 people were forced to flee each minute last year, four times more than a decade earlier. One of the things that is most concerning is that these things are occurring within as well as among nations because it's tearing at the social fabric that holds a lot of countries together. And unlike in the recent past, the West itself is now in internal turmoil, and it is now a source of geopolitical risk and instability. You have a U.S. administration that wants to shrink America's global world and a rapid change in dynamic that's weakening alliances. And it's just as much about what goes on inside countries and within groups as it is with what goes on outside countries, because those internal factors are key elements that drive the outward relationships between and among nations. So my goal is to understand more about why the global landscape is changing so dramatically and changing so quickly, and what this means for us as investors and just as inhabitants of the world. To do this, I journeyed to London, New York, Washington, D.C., and around my home state, Texas, and I talked with 20 of the best-informed people I know. I wanted a variety of places and a variety of outlooks because in this grave new world, as it's recently been called, it's become clear that nobody has a monopoly on truth. All right. Now that we have you sufficiently scared and probably turning your phone onto airplane mode, let's move on to our next segment, which is Things I Got Wrong, where we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made and ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom with our listeners. So hopefully you can avoid making the same mistakes. And I got the chance to speak with Greg Weldon, who is the CEO and president of Weldon Financial. Greg shared a really interesting lesson he learned from shorting the Thai bot during the 1997 Asian currency crisis when he got cocky and underestimated the monetary officials. So listen in. So this week, I'm pleased to be joined by Greg Weldon. Uh, Greg is the CEO and president of Weldon Financial, uh, which is a global macro research and money management firm. Uh, Greg, you're one of our most engaging and energetic contributors at Real Vision uh, TV. Um, you know, finance and macro can sometimes be kind of bland, but you add so much color to it that I think few do in the industry. Um, and you're a household favorite for not only Real Vision TV subscribers, but for those of us working here at Real Vision headquarters. So it's great to have you on this week. Thanks. I appreciate the kind words. So, Greg, before we get started into the uh, the nuts and bolts of this segment, which is things I got wrong, um, can you tell our listeners who are, who don't know you about your background, what you do, and kind of in broad strokes, the lens through which you view markets? 
Sure. Uh, I mean, I've been in the business now 31 years, knock on wood, hard to believe. Uh, started on the floor of the Commodities Exchange in New York City in the World Trade Center, uh, in the pits, in the gold and silver pits. So really, you know, didn't know. I went to Colgate University and studied English literature and Chaucer and poetry. So, I mean, it was trial by fire starting in my early 20s on the floor. Uh, interesting that I you know, ended up getting that job simply because I'm 6'10 tall. So, I mean, I really didn't have any clue as to what I was doing. So learning from the ground up, essentially, um, seeing the kind of the writing on the wall in terms of gold and silver volumes drying up, you know, financial futures uh, debuting and in the Matif and the life. And I mean, you know, I mean, gosh, I started in the business before the S&P futures were even trading. Um, so kind of from that perspective, wanted to learn a broader, you know, scope of markets and uh, started working at Lehman Brothers as a uh, broker's assistant, kind of worked my way up to being a broker. I met Lewis Bacon at, at Lehman Brothers and uh, was one of the first uh, people to join Lewis at More Capital. That's really where the education accelerated from, from you know, learning the macro, learning the risk of applications, doing all that, and then ultimately managing money at More Capital, managing money at uh, Commodities Corporation, and then starting my own firm uh, 20 years ago. So we've been producing independent research now uh, for, tw- for 20 years. Well, wow, incredible. Well, Greg, like, let's get right into it. Can you, um, you know, you have such a, a, color, a colorful and storied um, background. Can you tell us about a time you made an investing mistake and the lesson you subsequently learned from that experience? Sure. I mean, there's so many lessons to be learned and some of the lessons you kind of almost learn repeatedly. And as we've discussed previously, uh, you know, recognizing kind of when you're falling into one of the pitfalls of trading, because it's such a, a journey of self-knowledge and it's such a psychological uh, you know, quagmire and with so many landmines in terms of just kind of the mistakes we make as as people. Um, I can think of many instances where uh, these kinds of errors play into trading. So I'm more of a trader than an investor. So understanding I'm coming from that perspective. Uh, I recall, I mean, when you guys asked me to do this, one of the first things I thought of was, you know, really kind of uh, underestimating the ability, and this is something I've learned over time, to really respect monetary officialdom. As much as me, we may want to criticize them, and I don't, because their job is virtually impossible to do. Um, but really understanding the influences that they can have, the degree to which they can shock and awe you with some of their decisions. I go back to when I was managing money for Commodities Corporation in Princeton, and it was you know late 96 into early 97, we jumped all over the Asian currency dynamic. I remember kind of the catalyst for me, just you know, kind of one of those eye-opening, you know, epiphany-type moments. Seeing a chart of Thailand's exports and seeing them go negative year over year, kind of for the first time in my experience. And we got short the Thai bot, uh, as you know, the Thai bot subsequently imploded. Uh, the mistake then became thinking that we knew more than we might have known, or thinking, you know, just being cocky, frankly. And when you tend to be successful is when you tend to be willing to take more risk. And I think that, you know, from my experience and from this particular learning experience, is a big mistake. Uh, it, it manifests itself with my experience in the sense that, you know, the next thing that we kind of decided to go after almost, if you look at it that way, was the Malaysian ringgit. Uh, we took a big position. You know, we had made really good money being short the Thai bot. So we actually increased our position, uh, you know, being short the Malaysian ringgit. Uh, and it wasn't long after that they instituted capital controls, pegged the currency, froze the market, you know, created a two-tier offshore onshore type of thing. 
and we got decimated. And, you know, understanding that when you're making money, you may want to, you know, it gives you a sense of, of confidence that, you know, you probably shouldn't take to the degree of applying that to your risk metrics where you're willing to take more risk. I mean, in that case, you know, we totally underestimated the potential and the effectiveness uh, that, uh, you know, the monetary authorities there might have in kind of fighting us or defending their currency. So, you know, that's a very specific mistake that kind of has tentacles into several areas, the psychology of trading, the, uh, you know, trying to really maintain an understanding of what the risk is and then, you know, uh, applying you know, uh, a more cautious attitude, particularly when you think you know more than maybe you do. Um, Greg, that, I think that point about um, maybe respecting these monitor, the monetary authorities, uh, that's, that's been kind of a, it's a, a consistent theme in some ways uh, with our other contributors who've come on for this segment. I remember Ben, uh, ben Hunt talked about getting his teeth kicked in by uh, Mario Draghi in 2012. Uh, we had uh, Bill Fleckenstein come on and also talk about like you know underestimating the firepower of these monetary authorities. Um, so I, I feel it's, it's such an interesting um, uh, pattern because I guess on the one hand you can see the the economic and macro writing on the wall, but there's also this other element of of their power or or, or their capacity that you maybe just can't measure, or, or maybe that's just the confidence that people have in these uh, monetary authorities. Yeah, I mean, another perfect example for me personally was 2008, 2009. I mean, you know, we wrote our book uh, in 2006 and pretty much called the the meltdown, the, the the credit crisis in the U.S. And even to the degree that we spoke about, you know, we went on television and said, hey, you know, the Fed's going to have to you know, monetize treasury debt and print new money to bail out the consumer in the real estate market. And, you know, almost got laughed off the set for crying out loud. Um, that ended up being true. We had a great run in 2007, 2008, but again, kind of almost made the same mistake as we had a decade ago uh, when underestimating monetary authorities, when the Fed came in with TARP and TALF, when they came in with their, well, what I call the St. Paddy's Day Massacre, when on you know, March 17th of 2009, this was the QE began, the QE era began. And while we were right that they would do that and it came to fruition, we underestimated the impact. We underestimated the degree to which they were willing to do that with trillions and trillions of dollars. So, you know, having made a lot of money in 2007, 2008 from a variety of positions, uh, one of which was being short global equity markets, we got our, our teeth kicked in as well in 2009 when we repeatedly tried to get short again on the way up without really giving enough due credit uh, to the monetary authorities and their willingness and the degree to which they were willing to go uh, to basically keep the whole kind of bubble floating. Yeah, really unprecedented. Greg, I, I want to turn to something you said a little earlier about being a trader and not an investor. Um, this is a question that I, I like to ask anytime I meet someone who is a trader and less of a, I guess, a long-term investor, is that what do you think you know, longer horizon investors can take away from traders who maybe focus on a shorter uh, time frame? Pretty simple, and it gets back to maybe one of the classic mistakes that uh, you know, um, people that are starting out tend to make, which is to stick around too long with the trade. Uh, I think you need to be flexible. I think in this day and age where, you know, one of the big things that I've seen evolve in my 30 years is the, how quickly information is, uh, you know, is dis- disseminated, how widely available it is, and how, you know, it's trends remain trends, but trends aren't so much now kind of gradual 
even though they might look like it on a chart, you get adjustments where, you know, you kind of are, you know, coagulating and then boom, you spurt uh, on news. So I, I think that, you know, from an investment standpoint, uh, a buy and hold, you know, is a strategy. But if you're an investor, I don't think that's something you're really going to want to use as a methodology. So from my perspective, being more nimble, uh, being willing to be diversified into different things. Um, but, you know, an investor can borrow uh, a, a page from the trader's handbook uh, just simply by being more nimble. That's really that simple. No, that, that sounds like great advice. Um, as we were speaking, I, <laughs> I pulled up a chart of the of the dollar ringgit uh, cross rate, and uh, <laughs> and just looking at it right now, I mean, we're we're at levels uh, probably last seen in, in 1997, um, and you're talking about that, you know, 96, 97 being an eye opening experience for you. Um, I mean, I've only really been following the markets for the past five years, and and I'm still waiting for that first like big eye opening experience because you know I was just entering college in 2008, 2009. Um, so who, who knows what the consequences of that be? I mean, I'm in no position to be cocky about what's going to happen next, but, uh, I'm looking forward to that time. Yeah. I mean, the swings then were, you know, unprecedented and frankly, to this day are still unprecedented. Those were some amazing money-making opportunities. That's not to say that opportunities don't exist uh, still today. Uh, but I think, you know, it's, it's much tougher in the trenches, uh, in the sense that, Sometimes you end up, you, I mean, you don't want to fight the Fed. I mean, that's another kind of lesson I've learned is, again, in that same vein of respecting monetary authorities and their willingness to do whatever they have to do to avoid a debt deflation uh, is also, you know, understanding that sometimes you're on the other side of that and that, uh, you know, the opportunities still very much exist. Right. And I think that's why, you know, Grant and I really, we really value and we think this this whole segment is important because um, there are opportunities out there, but investors and traders need to educate themselves and, and listen to guys like you who have tons of experience, um, get those lessons so that they can prepare themselves for those super future opportunities. But Greg, unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, before we sign off, where can people follow your work or get in touch with you? Oh, for sure. Thanks. Uh, www.weldononline, that's W-E-L-D-O-N, online, one word, dot com. And as always, we offer any of your listeners or uh, uh, viewers that haven't uh, tried our research yet to come and sign up for a free trial. We do daily research covering all angles, macro, uh, bonds, currencies, uh, the whole range of commodities, uh, stock indexes globally and ETFs. Uh, so pretty broad based, pretty in depth. And uh, we offer you know trading recommendations in all of those sectors, very specific uh, trading recommendations. Yeah, I, c- I couldn't recommend enough, uh, Greg, as I said from the outset. Um, not only is it insightful, but it's one of like the most entertaining market market commentary that I think you can find out there. So uh, really appreciate you coming on uh, this week and thanks for your time. My pleasure. Anytime. You guys do a great job and I'm always happy to uh, contribute. So Grant, this whole idea of underestimating the monetary officials, I think is, is really interesting because I mean, I know you and I both spend time thinking about, you know, where, where is public sentiment? Where is public confidence as it relates to not only the monetary system, but the people who are behind the curtain kind of pulling the strings and, and levers. So when Greg talks about underestimating these people, right. And then you're thinking about like, yeah, but where's the public confidence? Like where, when is that undermined? Like, how do you, you know, how do you think about that? How does that balance out in your observations? Well, I think there's two things here. I think there's there's underestimating the officials, but to me it's more a case of underestimating the lengths they will go to to, uh, to either hide their desperation or protect the legacy that they create. And, and that to me is the big takeaway, is that these guys will stop at nothing 
until the market stopped them. And so far, their action has been, since 2008, has been a massive tailwind for the markets. You know, and I've talked about this before. When you go back, I think we talked about this with Tim Price, when you go back to um, Black Wednesday in the UK, when, when the sterling was forced out of the European exchange rate mechanism, that was the market punching central bankers in the face. And, and it happens. We've forgotten that it happens. This time, um, the Thai officials and the Malaysian officials had to resort to really draconian measures to, to keep things intact. And they just about pulled it out of the fire. Malaysia took some serious heat and it, and it caused problems for that country for a long, long time in terms of foreign capital flows. But I think Greg's point about underestimating how desperate these guys become speaks to what you talked about in terms of public confidence. Because I think the lengths they can go to, as long as they have that public confidence, are far greater. They all still need financing. That's the that's their Achilles heel. And so the more desperate they become and the more draconian their measures get, the more the risk premium increases. So this to me is the, is the big lesson here. You, you have to watch out for the time where markets suddenly turn around and go, you know, okay, fine, you, if you're going to do that, that's okay. But you want to borrow more money from me, it's not going to cost you, you know, 25 basis points, they're going to cost you 2%. Right. And and at these very low levels, the sensitivity to moves in interest rates become that much more magnified. Yeah, the duration risk is massive. Um, I guess from my perspective as, as a younger investor, you know, when I think about all this stuff, it's like, you know, and we talked about this, Grant, you know, at some point there's going to be some kind of, you know, generational or once in a lifetime buying opportunity. But Grant, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there because we come to the end of this episode. But before we do, just a quick legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors only. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops and trade responsibly. Yes, indeed. Wise words. Next week, we will be back as usual with our long, short and things I got wrong segments. And for our feature commentary, we'll be revisiting uh, one of my all-time favorite interviews on Real Vision, and that's with Harry Markopoulos. This was the guy who blew the whistle on Madoff, and he talks about how he arrived at that conclusion, the telltale signs behind a fraud, and the baffling misalignment of incentives in the auditing industry. So this is an interview that you absolutely don't want to miss. Yeah, this one was so much fun to do. Ral and I both, after we finished going back over that, were like, oh man, I'd forgotten how great that interview was. Uh, in the meantime, before we next week, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show or, for that matter, anything else, we would absolutely love to hear it. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Yeah, you know the drill about those reviews. No one understands how they work. Nobody <laughs> in the entire world, but they do. So please do take the time to leave us a review if you have it. If you want to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, then please do follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. You can also find us hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. And you can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. You can follow me at Macrodidact. That's it from us. We will see you back here next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.